You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Vipassana Sharma. Uh, she's an assistant professor at uh, UCSC, University of California, Santa Cruz. We were talking about uh, epigenetic effects on, uh, on cells in general. So uh, Vipassana, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. yeah. Just to start out, um, you know, I've talked about this before, but what is your definition of epigenetics? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And I think uh, everybody has their own version of it. So I started in a lab where I was studying first single cell organism and epigenetic inheritance in those, so budding yeast. And uh, now I'm started looking at more multicellular organisms. So um, I define epigenetic inheritance as inheritance of phenotypic changes in the absence of changes in the underlying DNA sequence. So the DNA sequence remains the same, but how it is utilized changes. Uh, so that's how I define it. Yeah, and from, from my understanding, um, I guess we have these uh, things called histones that DNA will wrap around, mm-hmm. and that'll uh, and and parts of DNA can become methylated. I guess uh, inactive yeah. or unreadable. Is that uh, the right understanding of? Yeah. So yes. So that's absolutely. So there are basically mechanisms. So epigenetics can be, you know, defined as another mechanism of regulating gene expression. And uh, there are multiple ways you can do that. One way is by wrapping the DNA around this core of uh, proteins known as histones to form something known as the chromatin structure. And uh, it's it's kind of very uh, intuitive if the DNA is tightly packed. So the transcription factors cannot bind and you cannot have expression of those genes. Whereas areas where it's more open, you can express those genes and those are being, so that's, that's open chromatin and closed chromatin. Uh, and as you rightly said, there is also DNA itself can be modified. Um, and that's mostly the most well-known as the DNA methylation. Um, and if it's methylated, then again, that uh, relates to, uh, repression so that the genes are not expressed in those areas, whereas areas where the DNA is unmethylated, uh, we can get expression. And one of the third areas of how gene regulation can take place is via non-coding RNAs. Uh, that is known as, um, so these are RNAs which are 
transcribe, but they don't make a protein. So these are non-coding in that sense. Uh, and uh, small non-coding RNAs, so RNAs which are smaller than, um, say, 40 nucleotide, have been shown now in multiple different organisms to play an important role in epigenetic gene regulation. Uh, and, and that's the area where right now I'm focusing. I'm studying the role of small non-coding RNAs um, in intergenerational inheritance. So we focus on small non-coding RNAs in the sperm to um, as the potential epigenetic information carriers of paternal generation uh, to the next generation. So I got a couple of questions here. Um, so with epigenetics, is the underlying DNA itself fundamentally changed? Or if, you know, like, so... I guess it's a weird question. So if, if a part of your DNA gets methylated, mm -hmm. you could say that the DNA, I guess, has been changed if if a certain gene is forever downregulated or completely turned off, right? Yeah, but, so that's, uh, so, you know, you're, you're right. In a way, we can say, okay, you're actually changing the DNA. But the cool part about, and I think how epigenetics can, um, uh, you know, explain so many things, is that most of the epigenetic marks are reversible. So they are dynamic. Um, so we can change, so there could be some uh, proteins, factors which are involved in methylating DNA and then others which can remove it. Uh, and so in that sense, your underlying DNA sequence remains the intact and the integrity is maintained, but you're kind of changing how you're using it. And that depends on maybe if you want to make, um, you know, a heart cell, then you only express the heart-specific genes. Um, but if using the same DNA sequence, you want to make a skin cell, you, you um, make modifications on the heart cell-specific genes and now express the skin cells. Uh, and so this by this mechanism, you basically start with, um, so we all start from single cell, right? And then we make this complex body, which is made up of trillions of cells, and they've all differentiated to make different cell types. Um, and the question stays that they all have the same DNA sequence. So how do the a heart cell becomes a heart cell and a neuron becomes a neuron? Uh, but then in the gametes, which is the one cell which is going to go to the next generation, we still can maintain everything. And in the next generation, we again go back to the single cell and make the complex organism again. So that shows that you can keep uh, these epigenetic marks can be changed and modulated. And so they're reversible. So that uh, keeps the underlying DNA sequence unchanged. Well, so, um, you know, throughout my life, I acquire epigenetic marks based mm -hmm. on just living, being exposed to things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I have a child. Um, I've, I've seen that it's theorized that all of the epigenetic marks are removed, you know, in the, in the gametes, but it doesn't seem to be the case experimentally, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so is there any idea of, how many epigenetic marks are removed and how many are preserved and therefore heritable? Yes. So, uh, so you're right. So we, as we go through early development, uh, we kind of reset the genome to, again, go to the, you know, complete empty slate where now you can start making new cell types. Uh, but there are certain uh, regions where, for instance, the histones are maintained. So the paternal histones. Uh, there are also specific regions uh, where the DNA methylation is maintained. So these marks are maintained and that could be the specific loci or specific uh, regions where this information could be still maintained and passed to the next generation. And that's basically the working hypothesis in the field that it's uh, these uh, the remaining marks which did not undergo genome-wide epigenetic rewriting are the potential carriers. 
And I think here I would like to plug in the small RNAs, which uh, at this stage uh, we don't. So small RNAs, since they do not go through, or I would say it's still early in the field to understand what the dynamics is. But small RNAs, since these are still could be carried to the next generation without undergoing through that whole epigenetic rewiring, uh, could be a very good potential carriers of epigenetic inheritance as well. I guess I imagine you know DNA residing in a permanent home inside of the nucleus of a cell. But where I mean, where do RNAs hang out mm-hmm. in our cells? Is there any repository for them where they'll they do they have a permanent home like DNA does? Yeah, so uh, so RNAs, once they are made in the nucleus uh, and then uh, they are then shipped out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm uh, where they can carry out different functions. Uh, so uh, there are certain nuclear RNAs, certain uh, cytoplasmic RNAs. So I would say they're kind of present depending on what function and role they play. They could be present at different uh, sub uh, locations in the cell. In terms of, and I think this is a good question if you're thinking in terms of what is being delivered to the next generation. Uh, and uh, so we study sperm um, and how sperm could be carrying epigenetic information. And in the, that case, we're still trying to figure out because sperm already has very little cytoplasm left and there's mostly uh, you know, a highly compacted nucleus, uh, whether we most of these small RNAs are present in the cytoplasm or some of them could be still present in the nucleus. Uh, and there is studies to support both. There are some small RNAs which are present in the nuclear compartments and some which are present in the cytoplasmic, so in the midpiece and the tail regions as well. Uh, so um, it's, they are, I think with the DNA, it's more of, uh, we know things much more clear and there's a, just one defined mechanism. In case of RNA, they're more uh, complex, and depending on what the functions they play, they could be at different uh, regions of the cell. Okay, and then, um, I don't know, I guess if you, in terms of gene expression, mm-hmm. um, does DNA methylation and, you know, histone modification play a much larger role than, you know, what will happen with RNAs? Is there any sense of the, uh, the importance of both? So, so in the so it's better. So, if I get your correct question correctly, you're asking whether uh, the histone marks and DNA methylation play, or whether the small RNAs play a larger role. Which epigenetic mark might be more involved in this? Is that the question? Yeah, I guess you know. It's, I apologize for my lack of understanding, but RNAs no, no, no. essentially are created and made mostly from DNA. So, if you have an epigenetic mark. Mm-hmm. on your DNA, you know, methylation, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see that would lead to a cascade of different RNAs being produced. Right. Which yeah. then I guess could, you know, go back and affect the DNA itself again. So that maybe yeah. that's how the epigenetic yes. work. Yes, exactly. Yes. Cascades yes. its effect. But I mean, RNAs themselves, uh, do they mm-hmm. appear to have any adaptation to our environment and undergo like, you know, epigenetic changes themselves or changes themselves? Yes. So, yeah, I think so to answer your question. So first thing, yes, you're absolutely right. There is a crosstalk between different epigenetic marks to regulate um, epigenetic uh, gene regulation. So chromatin marks, uh, DNA methylation, small RNAs kind of work together. Uh, In terms of whether small RNAs on their own can be regulated, uh, and that's, so we, uh, you know, my previous work and now from many other labs also, we've seen that environment can modulate their levels. 
So in my postdoc, I was studying how paternal low protein diet, uh, for instance, affects metabolism in the next generation. Uh, so we had know from mouse work that, uh, you know, fathers which are um, fed a low protein diet, they sire offspring with altered lipid and cholesterol metabolism. So when we looked at their sperm, we did not see any changes in DNA methylation in response to diet. We also haven't so far seen any changes in histone occupancy in the you know, low protein sperm compared to control sperm. But on the other hand, when we look at small RNA, we find that there are specific small RNAs. These are known as uh, tRNA derived small RNAs or tRNA fragments. So these are cleavage products of mature tRNAs. And we found that uh, specific tRNA fragments are upregulated in low protein sperm. We also saw a specific microRNA, let's seven, was downregulated in low protein sperm. Uh, and we know from other work from Dr. Chichen's lab, they also find that in response to high fat diet, there is a, a, an increase in the overall levels of tRNA fragments in the sperm. Uh, and now there's also there's work from Dr. Tracy Bell's lab where they've shown that paternal stress can lead to changes in microRNA, specific microRNA levels in the sperm. Uh, we also have work from um, uh, many different labs who have looked at, you know, exposures to different environmental toxicants, and they also seem to change small RNAs, for instance, ethanol exposure. So I think now more and more labs have found that the sperm small RNA payload is responsive to environmental conditions. Uh, so it does seems to be changing. Now, whether what's the mechanism, how the environmental signaling, how is environmental information signal to these small RNAs, how do they lead to changes in small line levels is still a big open question in the field. Uh, and that's something we're trying to understand. Okay. There's some, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. So quick question here. So all right, so all no. kinds of different RNA is affected, but where is the root cause of the RNA changes coming from? Is it coming because the DNA has been epigenetically marked and therefore the RNAs produced from it are changed? Or is it that there's something else that, uh, that's creating the RNA, you know, that's the, it's not coming from the DNA and the nucleus. And again, is there anything else that creates the, these RNAs, the tRNAs, mRNAs, et cetera, that could be a source of change for them? Like, what is the source of the change, you think? Yes. So uh, basically, and that's, as I said, it's kind of still a question that we're trying to investigate. So there is some info. So tRNAs specifically are highly modified, and so they have modified uh, nucleotides, which... Um, previous studies have shown can be modulated by uh, the metabolic status of the cell, for instance. So we can imagine maybe environments such as a different diet can lead to changes in the metabolites and that then lead to changes in these modifications on tRNAs. And then certain tRNA modifications um, are protective, so they prevent generation of tRNA fragments and others uh, allow tRNA fragment generation. So one mechanism would be that maybe the environment, such as a diet, uh, leads to changes in these modifications, and that's how we see changes in the uh, tRNA fragment levels. I would like to say that we have done studies where we have looked at just the expression levels. So I've looked at how the intact mature tRNAs are being synthesized uh, in a low protein, um, you know, testes versus a normal, uh, uh, and we don't see any changes. So it doesn't look like that it's the, uh, the environmental signaling is coming at the level of just 
generation, transcription of these tRNAs. But it looks like it's more at the level of how from tRNAs to generation of the tRNA fragments. So something that could be regulating the biogenesis of the tRNA fragment might be involved in signaling environmental information to, the, uh, to these tRNA fragments. It could be the enzyme which is involved in cleavage of tRNAs to make tRNA fragments, which is sensitive to the environmental condition. Uh, and I think, so I don't know how we're on time, but uh, there is, during these studies, I found something very interesting was that, uh, so when we looked at when the sperm acquires these tRNA fragments, we found that, uh, so spermatogenesis takes place in the testes, right? And after that, sperm enters this long convoluted tubule known as epididymis. Uh, and this is where sperm basically learns how to swim and fertilize. So it's about two weeks time in uh, mice when the sperm spends in the epididymis. So it's a very important part of the post-testicular maturation. Uh, so we wanted to see, you know, the question, for instance, you asked, like, how is the environment being signaled to these small RNAs? So the first question was to see when do these tRNA fragments become abundant in sperm? And surprisingly, we found that the testicular sperm uh, or germ cells are uh, do not have tRNA fragments and testes doesn't have tRNA fragments. But as the sperm enters the epididymis, it acquires this very high abundance of tRNA fragments. So it, this is something very epididymis specific. So that did not make sense because by the time sperm is in the epidermis, it's already transcriptionally silent. So it's not making any new RNA. Uh, it's translationally silent. So not much is happening at that stage. Uh, so, so there is studies from previous labs which showed that epididymis tissue has an important role to play for the sperm's post-testicular maturation. Um, and so we envisioned maybe something is happening in the epididymis uh, and that is helping to change the small RNA payload in the sperm. So we sequenced small RNAs from epididymis and we found that epididymis itself also has very high abundance of tRNA fragments. And that suggested a very intriguing possibility that maybe these tRNA fragments are actually generated in the epididymis and then shipped to sperm. So we have now to cut the long story short, we have enough data to support that in fact, that's what is happening, that the sperm, mature sperm, small RNAs are actually generated in the somatic cells of the epididymis and shipped to sperm via small extracellular vesicles known as uh, epididymosomes in this tissue. And otherwise people call them as exosomes or uh, small extracellular vesicles. So that was really- yeah, why, um, mm -hmm. why would, that's strange though. Why wouldn't all of this change happen as the sperm are developing in the testes? I mean, you have epididymosomes that further change them. And then mm -hmm. I've also read that there's prostosomes, the prostate right. you know, in making the seminal fluid mm -hmm. has its own exosomes and a whole bunch of other factors to guide the sperm on its yeah. journey. And I think that's some, so the fact that we found that this was, so the earlier development that takes place in the testes and the time when we give exposure of a low protein diet to these mice actually didn't make sense to us because they have already undergone that early development uh, because we give them about at the sexual maturity. So when they're, um, so we give them from weaning to sexual maturity, that is eight to 10 weeks, we give them this uh, low protein diet. Uh, and so the fact that we see effects coming from, at, you know, that later exposure 
suggested that something happening to sperm later on, not during early development. So in a way, it was very uh, satisfying to see this is what we found, that these small RNAs, which are changing in response to diet, are actually being acquired also during later development. And it looks like that sperm still continues to change, as you rightly pointed out, that there are prostosomes. There are studies which have also now found that the female reproductive tract also secretes uh, such extracellular vesicles so maybe the sperm still has a long you know, journey to make it to the oocyte and it is further altered by the female reproductive tract as well. Uh, and I think those are some of the studies in future we'll know, uh, you know more details, but I think it's a very compelling hypothesis. Uh, so it looks like that there are many different stages when the environmental influences can lead to changes in sperm epigenome. Uh, and it's not just during the early developmental stages. Why do you think the uh, the effects on sperm appear to be segmented and happen, you know, a set of them happens in the testes, then more in the epididymis, then more, you know, through the prostate, then there's probably other places too. Like, why do you think there's this segmented, uh, you know, priming of the sperm? I think it's more to do with, so uh, having, so we know like, yeah, some studies have shown more changes during early germ cell development. And that makes sense because at that time, the uh, you know there was a lot of epigenetic changes going on. So there is, uh, uh, and that is also a stage of um, very rapid cell division. So maybe that's one stage where environment has an influence because the epigenome is more prone to being changed or regulated. Similarly, because in the epididymis we see that there is this rapid change of, you know, going from very pi RNA heavy, uh, that's another small RNA in testes, testicular sperm, going from pi RNA heavy to epididymis heavy in the uh, mature sperm. So that's another um, epigenetic reprogramming event going on at this stage. And so maybe those are the specific stages of development when the epigenome is more dynamic that the environmental effects can uh, actually modulate them as opposed to other stages when it's kind of more set and you cannot really change much in the epigenome. Hmm, Okay. So what's the goal of your particular research? What are you trying to elucidate? So uh, I'm trying to elucidate as we, you know, uh, as I said that I started this work when I was a postdoc. So we found that sperm small RNAs are potential carriers of paternal dietary information. So now we're asking very basic questions about we're going back to basic biology to understand how epigenetic information is um, generated in the gametes and how that influences early development. So we're asking how sperm small RNAs are generated. So which enzymes, for instance, uh, generate these small RNAs, how environment can influence the levels, as you very rightly asked. That's an important question for us to understand how environment could change their levels. Um, and finally, we want to understand what is the functional um, consequence of this very abundant small RNA payload of sperm? What roles do these small RNAs play during early development where they, when they are uh, delivered to the oocyte at the time of fertilization? Uh, as that might help us understand how epigenetic information might be passed via these small RNAs to the next generation. So we're now understanding how they're generated, what functions they play. And then we can ask now, you know, does when we expose a, a mouse to a different environment, how are those processes modulated to pass environmental information to the next generation? Is anyone able to, I know, I know we can sequence DNA, are we able to sequence, or I don't know how, what you'd call it, but 
Are you able to determine for a given cell what all the epigenetic marks are? Are we able to see that somehow? What all the different epigenetic marks are in a, yes. at, a, at a single cell level? Yes, at a single cell level. Are we able to see that, like, essentially sequence someone epigenetically? Is there such a thing? Oh, so yes, uh, we have, you know, um, it's basically called, for instance, for looking at the RNA, we will be doing a transcriptomic analysis. So, for instance, we can look at all the small RNAs, you know, in, and that's how we found that tRNA fragments are highly abundant. So we can sequence uh, small RNAs, we, um, and that uh, it's, it's kind of, um, okay, I will not get into details of the technical, uh, you know, limitations of some of the techniques, but definitely we can sequence small RNAs, we can sequence, uh, we can do, um, there are methods to look at DNA methylation at a genome-wide level, there are also methods to look at specific histone modifications, histone marks at genome-wide level. So the technology has developed very well, and that's why some of these new studies that you know, uh, we're able to understand the mechanism is due to that advancement. Uh, for instance, this tRNA fragments, I don't think uh, anybody paid attention to these long, you know, 10 years back because we didn't have such good uh, sequencing methods. We didn't have good um, sequence sequencing data analysis methods. So people just thought of these as random degradation products of tRNAs. Uh, but now that the, the technology has developed so well that we can clearly see that these are uh, very site-specific manner-generated small RNAs. And of course, now we know their function as well. So technology is developing. I think for, uh, we are still the, you know, the single cell level technology is there. We haven't, the field hasn't applied it to uh, the intergenerational inheritance mechanisms. So for instance, we haven't done a single sperm small RNA sequencing, and that would be a nice thing to start looking at how at, because if you are exposed to a particular environment, is it that all sperm change in the same way, all the small RNAs in all sperm change, or is it a subset which is modulated? Uh, similarly, at the level of early uh, um, uh, development, I think looking at um, the single oocyte or single embryo. These are studies which we have now started doing and they are giving us much more information. Uh, so that's the, the field is going forward and we're almost there to kind of get a more better understanding of what's happening at a single cell level. Uh, but so far, most of the studies have been done at the bulk population level. So, okay. Um, when you look at the RNA in a given cell, I mean, how is it done? Are you taking the cell and centrifuging it and just, uh, you know, looking for um, the frequency of certain sequences that appear and that tells you what the distribution of RNA is or like, like how actually is it done? Yes. So basically, uh, we, you're absolutely right. So we, you know, separate out uh, single cells. Then uh, we, there is methods to make sequencing libraries where, so there is, um, there are methods where you can adapt, ligate specific sequences of DNA, which are known as adapters, for which the sequence is known. Uh, you adapter ligate, and then using PCR amplification, you amplify all the RNA. Uh, and uh, so this is this is how normal sequencing libraries are made. For single cell level, you want to now go and separate out individual cells. Uh, do the same process of amplifying whichever RNA is there by using, um, you know, these adapters for which the sequence is known. Um, and then you, uh, in the case of single cell technology, we can add something known as a barcode. So it's a 
six to eight nucleotide sequence, which we have now, the technology has developed to the extent that we each cell can get its own barcode so that when you're sequencing it, you know which cell it came from. Uh, so once we have all the data, then basically the question is to align it. So as you said, so we basically look at every RNA in there, but how do we know where it's coming from? Then you have to align it to um, a reference genome, which now after the genomic technology, you know, the boom in the genomic field, uh, most of the organisms have their genome sequence. So we know what a tRNA, for instance, for glycine will look like, the sequence for that. So the sequencing reads we get, we align it to those, um, to the reference genome. And that gives us a count of how many of tRNA glycine um, molecules were there, as opposed to how many of tRNA valine uh, molecules were there. And that's how we kind of start counting um, what was the you know, transcriptomic level, what was the composition of the RNA payload of a, say a particular cell. Uh, and that's, and of course uh, you need, there is a lot of, um, you know, normalization in which I won't get into at this point uh, to then get a good actual accurate number of um, reads. The sequencing technology has its own biases. Uh, so for instance, some RNAs might not like to get adapter ligated and we would not be able to then see those when we make these sequencing libraries. So yeah, I mean, it's a great technology, but every technology comes with its limitations. Mm -hmm. Any idea of um, what the possible range of effects upon a sperm that, uh, you know, epididymosomes would have versus prostosomes? Do they, you know, have we classed them at least? Okay, epididymosomes have these possible ranges of effects and then prostosomes these so, so, yeah, I mean, so far, actually, um, I don't know of any study which has come out where people have looked at effect of prostosomes on, you know, modulating uh, like sperm small RNA payload. This is speculated, uh, but it's we need to actually do those experiments. Uh, so I don't know if they would be passing environment information. Um, I, I think in general, it's still an open question and maybe we all need to do in, you know, so basically, for instance, some labs study paternal uh, dietary effects, some labs study paternal stress effects, um, and we see certain small RNAs changing. The question is, um, A, do we pass down information of, say, you know, diet and stress and how much, uh, what was the quality of the air, like that kind of digital information? Or we just passed down that life wasn't that great and it's kind of making a not such healthy sperm and that's what gets passed down. Uh, and that question is still, um, it needs more investigation to fully answer that question. Uh, I think maybe one way would be uh, to kind of keep trying one single lab, try many different exposures and see what is the effect in the next generation. Um, we have mostly seen that a very common phenotype in the next generation is a metabolic phenotype, which kind of suggests maybe it's just kind of sending a general signal, which affects early development. And that's why we see this metabolic defect. Uh, but I think we, yeah, we need more data to support either one of the hypotheses. Well, hmm. yeah, it's interesting. You just, I, I guess I wonder, like I said, why, why does this happen? What, uh, are there any general states that the epididymis can be in where, um, the epididymosomes are fundamentally different. Like, again, have the epididymosomes themselves been characterized so we can guess at what their function is? Or, you know, have you looked at healthy versus diseased 
epididymises and and uh, seeing if they you know produce very different uh, epididymosomes? Yeah, so that's a good question, and we're kind of um, just starting those studies to better characterize epididymosomes. Um, so one of the you know hypotheses based on my previous work is that potentially epididymis sense is the sensory organ. Uh, maybe that senses the environment and sends this information via these vesicles to the sperm. Um, and uh, we are now started to do, so So far the studies what we've done have we've looked at a very heterogeneous population of epididymosomes, uh, which uh, basically includes uh, bigger size vesicles, not like micro vesicles, and also uh, more about 100 nanometer size vesicles known as exosomes. So already we know there are going to be at least two different subpopulations there. Uh, we are now starting to separate those and see whether a, they all carry the same small RNA payload or do they differ. Uh, I think the important questions for us to ask is that whether this the regulation of how dietary information is passed to the next generation, is that at the level of sorting of specific small RNAs into the vesicle or not? Or is it at the level of the vesicle fusion with the sperm? And these are two other mechanisms how dietary information might be passed from the epididymis to sperm. So we have started looking at it. Uh, we, I would say this is too early for me to say anything what we, you know, um, in, in a conclusive manner. But uh, I do feel that there's going to be some subpopulations there, some of which would be involved in this um, trafficking of information from epidermis to sperm. Um, and maybe there would be uh, also regulation at the level of which epididymosomes fuse with sperm uh, or which sperm, whether they fuse with a live sperm or a dead sperm. And hence, they might have this ability to, um, uh, to regulate the levels of, you know, maybe the fertilization competent sperm. Uh, but yeah, this is all. We have just started these studies, so we don't uh, have much data to support this yet. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, uh, so, I mean, what do you expect will be a, uh, a potential result or an outcome or an, or an understanding that you're going to get in the next year or so based on your research? Like, what are you really specifically getting for? Yes. So uh, we are getting at, I think, two major things for me is to understand how these Tiana fragments are generated. Uh, so the mechanism which enzymes are involved in their biogenesis, that I think would be very important to uh, understand how maybe environmental information is signaled. So one of the major areas we're focusing right now is that. The other is the functional side. I think uh, because sperm, we found that 80% of small RNAs in sperm are TNA fragments, uh, how do, do they have a function during early development? Um, if so, how, what's the function and how would environment influence that? So we have started also now investigating function of other TNA fragments. We early looked at TNA glycine GCC fragment. Now we're focusing on other TNA fragments to understand um, on a more global level, what is the functional consequences of the small RNA payload of sperm? And this would also help us understand why this epididymis-specific remodeling of the small RNA payload takes place. So why would sperm acquire these tRNA fragments? Um, why go through all this process of, you know, going through epididymosomes, acquire these small RNAs and deliver it? So understanding what functions they play would be our first step to understand why this, what is the significance of this whole process. So that's where the lab is right now focusing. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to learn more about your research and about uh, epigenetics in general. What's your recommendation? 
Yes. So, uh, of course, there are a lot of, you know, great scientific papers, uh, but the list is pretty long. Uh, what I would say is uh, we uh, I have my lab website at on UCSC, uh, sharmalab.ucsc, uh, and that's where they can find more information about my lab. Um, in uh, in addition to that, um, we I think there are a lot of uh, nice upcoming. We have a lot of epigenetic concentrated meetings, and usually they come out with um, a kind of a full, um, what do we say, report of what happened in the meeting. And looking out for those would be a nice way of kind of in one um, place getting all the information. So the uh, the there is a environmental epigenetics journal, and they usually do that for the epigenetic inheritance meeting. So I think that's such as, for instance, a nice place for people to find more information. Uh, and in general, of course, I think in media now we keep getting news, uh, which is good. But I think going more towards some of the scientific journals would be the best place to find more accurate information. Yeah, and last question, uh, a primer on epigenetics itself. Any recommendations there on a book that, uh, you know, someone that has a real interest in this can can look at you know, they may be mostly layperson or you know, halfway towards some kind of uh, understanding but any recommendations there on uh, a particular book so there is a book just you know epigenetics um it's called the handbook of epigenetics i think uh, i would i'm trying to remember which is like the more uh, earlier versions of it so right now for instance i'm teaching genetics and we use uh Genes to Genome, uh, book on genetics. That has a section on epigenetics too, but it's, I think, very brief. Uh, so there is a, yeah, there's a book called The Handbook of Epigenetics, and I think that could be a good starting point. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Upasana, thank you for coming on the call. It's been very thank good. Thank you so much, Ruth. Right. Thanks. Okay. Bye. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.